In our study of the covenants of God with men, we have uh, been considering now the new covenant in the New Testament. And in our last uh, brief study, we looked at Romans chapter 11, especially verses 25 to 27. This time we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The word covenant appears in this chapter only two times. In verse 6, the Apostle Paul calls himself and his helpers ministers of the new covenant. And in verse 14, he speaks of the old covenant. But though the word does not appear uh, so many times in the chapter, nevertheless, the chapter is very important in relation to this whole idea of the covenant because it shows us the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we should note immediately that as Paul is describing the difference between the Old and the New Covenants, he does not say that the difference between these covenants is in the promises that were made or in the presence or absence of Christ in the covenants, or even really in the presence or absence of the Holy Spirit in these covenants. But rather, the difference between the covenants is in the ministry or in the administration of the covenants. It is really assumed then throughout the chapter that Old and New Covenant are a continuum and that the difference between them is a difference of glory and a difference of administration. Now, before we get into the study of that idea as it appears in this chapter, I think there are some important words that we should look at first. The first of those important words is the word spirit. That word spirit occurs in verses 3, 6, 8, 17, and 18. And though there are some commentators that would disagree with me on this, I think it's very important to uh, hold that the word spirit in this chapter always refers to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who has been given by Christ to dwell in our hearts. And that word spirit is contrasted with the word letter in verses 6 and 7. The word letter doesn't occur as often, but it is the first point of contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is a covenant of letter. The New Covenant is a covenant of spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, in fact. So spirit is the first of those important words. The second word is the word glory. And this word occurs many times, especially in the first half of the chapter, but then also in the final verse, verse 18. And this is the word around which Paul makes his contrast. He says uh, in many different ways in this chapter, the glory of the old covenant was surpassed by the glory of the new covenant. The glory of the new covenant is much greater. And then he concludes the chapter by saying, we with unveiled face, behold the glory of Christ in a mirror. And as we behold that glory of Christ in the mirror, we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, 
by the Spirit of the Lord. So that word is exceedingly important. A third word that's important in this uh, chapter is the word that the King James renders as passing away in verses 7, 11, and 13. And it's talking about the Old Covenant and the glory of the Old Covenant when it talks about what is passing away. But that word also appears in verse 14, where the New King James translates it differently. In verse 14, that word is translated as taken away. The veil is taken away in Christ. But it would have been better to say the veil has passed away in Christ to make it clear that this is the same word you find in verses 7, 11, and 13. But the King James translation of that word is really uh, somewhat weak also. The word could be better translated as abolish or make of no effect. It's the word, for example, that the Apostle Paul uses in Galatians 3, verse 17, where he is also talking about the covenant. He says there, this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. That it should make the promise of no effect. So that's the the word that we have here in 2 Corinthians 3, to make of no effect to abolish, or to render idle. Sometimes it's even translated as destroy. And that word applies then to the letter of the Old Covenant. So that's another important word. A fourth important word is uh, is really a complex of words, uh, of words that all come from the same root, but has the, the word has different forms here in this chapter. It's the word diakoneo, which is the verb form, diakonos, which is a noun form, which is translated as minister, or diakonia, which is translated as ministry or administration. Diakoneo, to minister, appears in verse 3. Uh, diakonos, minister, as a noun, appears in verses 5 and 6, and diakonia, ministry, appears in verses 7, 8, and 9. And it's in ministry that there, uh, the differences between the Old and New Covenants resides. And then the final word that we want to take note of here is the word veil. That word veil appears especially at the end of the chapter in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. And uh, a verb form of that word appears in verse 14, where the apostle says, verse 14, But their minds were blinded, for until this same day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. The veil remains unveiled. 
in the reading of the Old Testament. Uh, The veil has not been taken away, in other words. And in verse 18 as well, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So you have that word of veiling, that idea of veiling too, and you have the idea of unveiling as well, especially for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are the the words I think that you have to pay attention to, and it's important to pay attention to those words as we work through this passage, because the whole argument of Paul in this passage revolves around the using of those words. Now in this context, Paul is defending his apostleship and his appointment as a minister of the New Covenant. That's very clear at the beginning of the chapter. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. So Paul says, you, church in Corinth, are proof of our apostleship. You are proof that Christ was working through us for your salvation. We don't need, therefore, uh, physical letters of commendation. There's something, you have something much better than that in the fact that through us, the salvation of Christ came to you. So he's uh, defending his apostleship, and he says then of his apostleship in uh, verse 6 that Christ made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. And that's where he introduces this idea of the covenant and begins the contrast between old covenant and new covenant. Now, the question may well arise, why is Paul uh, diverted, as it were, from the subject of the covenant, uh, or from his apostleship, rather, to this idea of the covenant in the verses that follow? And I think the answer to that question is that Paul was probably dealing in Corinth with, at least in part, with the influence of the Judaizers the Judaizers who were trying to turn the Corinthians back to the Old Covenant. We know that there were Jews at work in Corinth from Acts chapter 18. When Paul was first there in Corinth, he went to the synagogue and he preached in the synagogue and the Jews rejected him and he Uh, said in verse 6, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he was preaching in the synagogue. But then in uh, verse 12, we read, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord arose, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. 
and Gallio drove them from the judgment seat because he said, I do not want to be a judge of matters pertaining to your law. Verse 15. So the Jews were active there in Corinth. And so Paul is not only defending his apostleship in the sense that he's saying, I am a true apostle, which of course the Jews would have denied, but he's saying, look what you received from me. You received something much better than anything the Judaizers are offering to you. The best that they could possibly offer to you is the old covenant. But I ministered to you the new covenant. That is a much greater and more glorious blessing than you could ever receive in following the Judaizers. So the first point of comparison that the Apostle Paul makes then in this chapter is uh, found at the end of chapter 6, verse 6, excuse me, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. There you see it, the uh, contrast between letter and spirit. And then Paul goes on and he says, the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Here's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is the covenant of God with Israel at Sinai, the law of God given through Moses. He says that that letter kills, but the Spirit and I believe that is the Spirit of God, as I said, gives life. So that letter came to them at Mount Sinai. But in the New Testament, as Paul preached the gospel to them, they did not receive the letter. They received the Spirit. Now he also then says in verse 7, If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious... So he refers to that letter as the ministry of death. And this is why he says that the letter kills. Now, in what sense does the law or the covenant of God with his people at Mount Sinai kill? Well, I think there are two things that we should recognize in that connection. The first is that the law gives the knowledge of sin. The law, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, makes sin exceedingly sinful. It exacerbates, if you will, the knowledge of sin. It confirms in unmistakable terms the condemnation of every man by that uh, judgment of God. The law, therefore, creates the knowledge of sin and ministers death then in the sense that it presses upon the consciences of men the knowledge that they stand under judgment, that they are subject to death because of transgression. That's the first point. The second point, however, is that that law then cannot give life. So the law shows the problem, but provides no solution. The law exposes sin, but does not show the way 
to deal with sin does not uh, provide a way out of sin and death. It's a ministry of death. That's why Paul says it's a ministry. It's a ministry of death. It administers death, not through any uh, brutality or problem with the law itself, but because the law comes to sinners who have transgressed it. So that's the first thing that he says about this law. It's a letter that kills. It's a ministry of death. The second thing he says is that this law, this old covenant, was written and engraved on stones. Now, when God gave it to his people on stones, and of course that was the Ten Commandments, he did that in part to show his people that that law is permanent. And that law is not abrogated in the New Testament. We're going to be touching on that again a little bit later in this study. That law continues even in the New Testament. Jesus says he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And then he explains how that law applies to us in the New Testament in the rest of Matthew chapter 5. So the law was written on stones to show its permanence first. But Paul uses that idea of it being written on stones to demonstrate the inferiority of that old covenant compared to the new covenant. And for this, we have to go back a little bit to chapter 3, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So what Paul is saying there is that the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that that Old Covenant was simply written on tablets of stone. It was external. But the New Covenant is written on tablets of flesh. The New Covenant is written on the heart. And this is in turn, a very clear reference to Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah talks about that new covenant and says of that new covenant that God is going to write it on the hearts of his people. Remember what he says, I believe it's in verse 31 of that chapter. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the new covenant is written on the fleshly tables of the heart, Jeremiah says. And Paul makes clear reference to that here in 2 Corinthians 3. 
That new covenant is written on our hearts. And taking it in connection with Jeremiah 31, he's referring to the law of God being written on our hearts so that we there is given to us righteousness, conformity to that law, being written on our hearts, that is, no longer being simply external, being written on our hearts means that now we have become conformed to that law. This is one way, in fact, then, that the gospel fulfills the law. The gospel fulfills the law by writing the law on our hearts, by writing the covenant of God on our hearts. So that's the second point, uh, thing that Paul says. And the third thing he says here in 2 Corinthians 3 about the Old Covenant is that it was glorious. He talks quite a bit about the glory of the Old Covenant. He says, first of all, that that glory was seen in the face of Moses. That's in verse 7. If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. So he talks about the glory of the Old Covenant, and then he equates that glory with the glory that the people of Israel saw in the face of Moses. The glory of the Old Covenant then shone in the face of Moses. And Paul says that glory of the Old Covenant was so great that the people of Israel could not look at it. Moses had to put a veil over his face to hide that glory of the Old Covenant from them. Nevertheless, Paul says, that glory of the Old Covenant was a passing glory, which glory was passing away the last clause of verse 7. That glory was passing away. It passed away from the face of Moses at some point, and it has passed away from the law itself, from the covenant of God with his people at Sinai in the New Testament. That old ministration of the letter has passed away and has been replaced by the ministration of of the Spirit, or the ministry of the Spirit. So those are the points he makes about the Old Covenant. But he also makes points about the New Covenant. And the main point that he makes about the New Covenant is that the ministry of the Spirit, as compared with the ministry of the letter, is a much more glorious ministry. It is a ministry of righteousness. Verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation, that's the ministry of the uh, old covenant, had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. And that ministry of righteousness comes in the writing of the law in our hearts, in the conforming of us to the image of Christ, in the giving to us the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's called a ministry of righteousness. And that's what Jeremiah was talking about when he says, God will write his law in their hearts 
and he will be their God and they will be his people and he will forgive their iniquities. So he does two things in this new covenant. He writes the law in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ, but he also forgives our iniquities and transgressions. In those two ways, the righteousness of Christ is given to us. So the old is a ministry of condemnation. The new is a ministry of righteousness. The old passed away. The new does not pass away. Verse 11. For if what is passing away was glorious, that's the old covenant, of course, what remains is much more glorious. It remains. It's permanent. There's no abrogation of that covenant. There's no taking away of it. It remains. And that is uh, the point, one of the main points that Paul makes here and in other places in his letters as well. That uh, ministry of righteousness does not pass, though the ministry of condemnation does. And then finally, he says that though the covenant, the old covenant was glorious, this new covenant exceeds in glory. And he repeats this a number of times. Uh, He says, for example, in verse 9, or verse 8, rather, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. And verse 10, For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. And 11, For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. The old covenant, the glory of the old covenant is like a candle in the light of the sun of the new covenant. But it all has to do with that ministry of the Spirit, not with a change in the promises, not with a change in the presence or absence of Christ, not ultimately really even in in a difference between whether the Spirit was present or not. He was present in the Old Testament, and you can see that in many Old Testament passages. But in the degree to which the Spirit works, and the benefits that the Holy Spirit conveys in the New Testament. They are richer and more glorious benefits than the people of God ever had in the Old Testament. Now we come to verses 12 to 16 in the chapter. Paul begins there in verse 12, saying, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. He says he's going to talk very boldly, and he has, in his preaching of the gospel, talked very boldly. He has not then revealed the glory of the new covenant in the very limited way that that glory was revealed in the Old Covenant. Notice what he says in verse 13. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, 
so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So Moses was revealing the covenant. The glory of the covenant was visible in his face, but he had to cover that glory. And because that glory was covered, it could not speak to the people of Israel as it should have been able to speak to the people of Israel. But Paul says, we're not going to be like that. There is not going to be any veil over our revelation. There is not going to be any hiding of the glory of this new covenant. That was a thing that happened in the Old Testament. The people of Israel could not look steadily at what was passing away. That glory then, which was not even as great as the glory of the new covenant, was still a glory that the people of Israel could not look at. And Paul says, whether you can look at what I'm saying or not, whether you can look at the glory of this new covenant or not, it's not going to be veiled as the glory of the old covenant was veiled in the face of Moses. We are going to speak boldly. We are going to speak with plain words of the glory of this new covenant. And if you believe, you will see that glory. That glory will not be covered. Now there's another important point that we should make here. Paul says, Moses put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. That glory of the old covenant was passing away. They couldn't look at it, but he says they couldn't look at the end of it. And the word that he uses there is the word telos. That is, it's not a word which means that they could not look steadily at the uh, destruction of what was passing away, but it's a word which means they could not look steadily at the goal of what was passing away. In fact, it had to pass away because of the goal towards which it was working. And what was that glory, that goal? That goal was the glory of the new covenant, the glory of Christ. That old covenant spoke in veiled terms, in shadowy terms, of the glory of Christ. That was its end. And that old covenant meant to point Israel to the glory of Christ. And when the people of Israel could not behold the glory of the old covenant in the face of Moses, they could not see Christ in that glory. They could not see the end, the goal of that glory. And why could they not see it? Well, Paul says that in the next verse. Their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. So Paul takes the veil that was on Moses' face and he says, really, that veil was on the minds of those people. And that veil remains on the minds of of the people of Israel, the Jews, also today 
in the reading of the Old Testament. They still are not seeing the end of that which is passing away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. That veil is the veil of unbelief. There was a problem with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai when they could not look at the glory of the Old Covenant in the face of Moses. And there was a problem with the Jews of Paul's day who could not look at the glory of the Old Covenant, but who had distorted that glory of the Old Covenant according to their own imaginations and had taken the veil that was on the face of Moses and, as it were, had hung that veil over their own minds so that they could not see that glory. This should remind us of the words of Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, where the apostle there uh, refers again to Jeremiah 31. If that first covenant and he's referring to the covenant of God with his people at Sinai, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. That first covenant was faultless, uh, was a faulty, not in the sense that it did not or could not achieve God's purposes. God had a purpose in it, and it achieved that purpose. It was the ministry of condemnation, So the covenant itself was not faulty in that it could not achieve God's purpose as God had his purpose in it, but it was faulty in this that it could not accomplish salvation. That first covenant, the law written on tablets of stone, could not accomplish salvation. In that respect, it was faulty. And therefore, God says, I will make a new covenant. But then notice what the Apostle does in verse 8 of Hebrews 8. He takes that fault of the Old Covenant and he transfers it to the people because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. So the fault was in the people, not in the covenant itself, at least in the sense that it could not accomplish what God intended it to accomplish, but in the sense that it could not accomplish what God never intended it to accomplish. It could not accomplish the actual taking away of sin, the actual sanctifying of the people. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Nevertheless, Paul says, even for the Jews that veil can be taken away in Christ. That's also part of this passage. Their minds were blinded. The same veil remains unlifted for them today. 
because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Turn to the Lord and the veil falls away from the heart. The eyes are opened. The glory of the new covenant becomes visible. And it's that, then, that Paul is talking about in verses 17 and 18. What is the result of seeing this glory of the new covenant? Well, the first result is described in verse 17. The Lord is the Spirit, he says. He identifies that Spirit as the Lord. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So that uh, vision of the glory of the new covenant, when the veil is taken away in Christ, gives liberty. And what Paul means by that is liberty from the bondage of the law in the Old Testament. Remember how in Galatians chapter 3, he talks about that bondage of the old covenant, that bondage of the law. And he says, you have been made free in Christ. Now, that does not mean that they are made free to do whatever they please, that the law is no longer relevant. No, Jeremiah says the law is written on the hearts. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13, makes it very clear that the law is not abrogated. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. That same liberty that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 3. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law, notice that, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the law remains. It is the law, love God with heart and mind and soul, love your neighbor as yourself. The liberty is from the curse of the law, and the liberty is from that condemnation of the law, from the killing power of the law. The letter kills, remember, but the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ given to you because of Christ's work, gives life and liberty. The second thing is a very wonderful and very beautiful, and that you see in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Notice what the Apostle says. We all, with unveiled face, the veil has been taken away in Christ, beholding as in a mirror, and that mirror is the Scriptures, the glory of the Lord, that is the glory of Christ himself, that glory of the new covenant is the glory of Christ himself, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The face is unveiled. We behold the glory of Christ. That glory appears in the mirror of the scriptures. 
The Apostle Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love, when he talks about um, we seeing in a glass darkly, but then face to face. That's the idea here too. For now we see in a glass darkly, but even seeing in that glass darkly, we see the glory of Christ, the real glory of Christ. And as we look at that glory of Christ in the mirror, with unveiled face, we are transformed into the same image that is the image of Christ himself. And that glory of Christ becomes our glory. And we are transformed from glory to glory. Paul's, Paul's talking about a process here. There's glory given in the first unveiling of the face, but that glory increases and grows and enriches itself as we continue to behold the face of our Lord Jesus Christ until at last we reach that day, which the Apostle John describes in 1 John 3 when he says that we do not see him yet, but we shall see him as he is. And we see, when we see him as he is, we shall be like him. That glory is the glory that was revealed to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, the word transformed here in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 is the same word that's used of Christ's transfiguration. Metamorphosis. Christ was metamorphosed. He was transfigured before them. And remember, that's an also a very interesting point that the apostles could not look at that glory of Christ there on the Mount of Transfiguration. That was the glory of heaven. They were not able to look at it. That comes only when we see him as he is. Then we shall be like him and then we shall indeed behold that glory and be able to look at that glory without flinching. But for now, looking at that unveiled glory of Christ is like looking at the sun in its brightness, directly at the sun in its brightness. We can't do it. And so we see him in a mirror. But even in the mirror, the glory of the Lord is visible. And looking at that glory transforms us into the same image and continues to transform us into the same image from glory to glory until we have become wholly like him. That is the glory of the new covenant. May God bless you with his word.